my friend Candace Simpson wrote the following this past week, and I've been eager to share this with you. Quote, I've been working on something about prophets and what a prophet is and what a prophet isn't. And I'm clear, prophets don't just turn phrases cleverly. Prophets are so sensitive to the world that it appears that they're telling the future. What they're really doing is telling the truth about the present that no one wants to hear." End quote. Minister Simpson's observation is a helpful way of framing the haunting passage from Amos we just heard. The Holy One showed me a basket of summer fruit and said, Amos, what do you see? A basket of summer fruit, I said. What us English speakers miss is that in the original language, the term basket of summer fruit, this is fascinating actually. And I'm not really, um, in seminary I will not tell you the grade that I got in Greek. <laughs> I will tell you that I have found the biblical languages to be much more interesting on this side of ordination than the other side. <laughs> but I did notice this, and it's, it truly is fascinating. In Hebrew, the term basket of summer fruit is a pun on the word end. And so when the Holy One, the Creator, shows Amos a basket of summer fruit, Amos is being shown the end, which makes so much sense of the dimness of the rest of that passage. The end has come upon my people Israel, the Holy One says to Amos, and your songs will transform into welling. Dead bodies will be everywhere. This is not uplifting material. <laughs> I've often said that prophets do not make great guests at cocktail parties because who can enjoy a cocktail party when someone is foretelling gloom? But as Candace, my friend, said earlier, prophets are so sensitive to the present that we assume that they are seeing the future. Amos, in the style of prophets before and since, gets straight to the heart of his people's issue. The ruling economic and political class is enjoying relative prosperity at the expense of impoverished people, and if the nation does not correct its course, there will be harsh consequences for everyone for everyone. Amos here even goes so far as to use apocalyptic hyperbole. And apocalypse, apocalypse, our word in English, comes from the Greek word that means unveiling. So we use apocalypse sort of in scary ways, but really it just means an unveiling tearing away the veil so we can see things 
as they actually are. And here he uses apocalyptic hyperbole to illustrate the God of justice's disdain for exploitative economic and political arrangements. And this is usually what prophets are talking about in the Hebrew Bible and in the New Testament. I don't know how many of you are familiar with the Hebrew Bible scholar Walter Brueggemann, but Walter Brueggemann speaks very often of kind of the socio-political location of uh, prophets in the Hebrew Bible. And they were often not just one person. So when we see in the Bible um, a prophet personified as a single individual, it's usually a personification of a band or group of people who would travel the Judean countryside and the Israelites' countryside singing doom and gloom. So prophets were always poets and musicians as well. We can, in our contemporary setting, think of prophets as comedians. Comedians often have um, very searing social commentary, um, sort of cloaked in humor, and prophets played that role in ancient Israel. So they were kind of these agrarian musicians and poets who would travel the countryside singing and warning the people of God um, about the course that they were going on. And so he uses this apocalyptic hyperbole to illustrate God's disdain for exploitative economic and political arrangements. And he says this, I will make the sun go down at noon and I will darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasts into sad affairs and all your singing into a funeral song. But is this truly hyperbole? The more we learn about our climate crisis and the harmful effects of unregulated economic and ecological exploitation on not only our bodies, but on this land, on our ozone, on our oceans, on our mountains, the clearer it becomes that while prophets may not make great cocktail partners, they are attuned to things we often refuse to see. And it is then that we are invited to lean into the discomfort of hearing difficult things of celebrating a prophet's discipline, of waiting for the grace to reorient our lives. That's all that repentance is, is a reorientation, a changing of direction of one's life, of our common life, of seeking to live gently with one another and with the earth. And as one Eucharistic prayer in the Episcopal tradition says, this fragile earth, our island home. 
We only get one of these. And we must be gentle with it as we are gentle with one another. Of sitting at Jesus' feet because we're, we've never met anyone quite like him. I tend to try to be a little gracious with Martha. She always gets kind of the short end of the stick when we hear this story. But I think Martha and Mary both function in a way that any community needs. We need people who are going to sit and pray and contemplate at the feet of Jesus and people who are going to keep the train moving. <laughs> we can't have one of either. We need both in a community of practice. But there at Jesus' feet is where the famine that Amos warned us about ends, isn't it? That he promises that as Richard said this morning, when we stop feeling, when we stop practicing empathy, we are absent the word of the Lord. But when we sit at Jesus' feet, when we listen, not just to Jesus' words, but when we listen even to Jesus' face, when we take those nonverbal cues from Jesus, we are nourished, we are fed, and we can't help but bring other people to those same feet. Because we've never met anyone quite like him before. And we are afraid, and rightfully so, that we won't meet anyone like Jesus again. And we come to those feet, and we hold back the time when words of warning are finally desired, but are nowhere to be found. Amen.